This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, our next guest oversees the largest healthcare provider and private employer in New York State. We're talking about Northwell Health. The health system has hospitals on Long Island as well as in Manhattan and Queens. It was hard hit by the virus pandemic. So delighted to have back with us Michael Dowling, just to check in with him. He's president and CEO at Northwell Health. He's also the author of a new book. It's called Leading Through a Pandemic, The Inside Story of Humanity, Innovation, and Lessons Learned During the COVID-19. He joins us on the phone from Long Island. So, Michael, it is good to have you here with Alex and myself. Lots to talk about on this Tuesday. Um, how are you guys, though, doing as a healthcare system? Oh, we're doing quite well, and that's, I'm delighted to be on with you guys again. Uh, thank you for the invite. And uh, we're doing quite well. Uh, today, we have only about 90 patients uh, with COVID in all of our facilities. Um, we have only about 10 people in ICUs, and we have nobody in, uh, on vents. So we are, quite frankly, in a very, very good position uh, right now. Uh, so what we have to be careful, of course, is, is not to get complacent. And we have to be, um, you know, very, very diligent because, um, you know, we can get a surprise if people don't behave and uh, people don't wear masks and people don't social distance and business doesn't do what business should be doing by enforcing those standards. Um, We've just got to protect the progress that we've made, as the governor has has said. We're doing quite well in New York, and we want to keep it that way and continue to get better so that we can continue to open up the economy fully. Michael, you sound cautious, and rightfully so, in terms of what you folks and your team have seen on the front lines during these hard-hit months uh, in New York. Yes. So tell me, are you anticipating that we're going to see another wave? Are you nervous about schools reopening? Uh, if it, if it is, I'm not nervous about any of those things if they are done properly. If people take the appropriate precautions and be extra, extra cautious. Uh, obviously, um, you're always worried since this is one of those things that is quite invisible and it can bounce back. So this is why we have to, you know, not as I said at the beginning, not get complacent. Uh, We do have plans in place if it does come back. Uh, We have been organizing our plans, developing tabletop exercises, etc. So we know exactly what to do if it comes back. Those plans are very detailed. We are hoping, however, not to have to implement them. But if it does happen, uh, we are prepared. And I think the public needs to know that. So So, um, so to uh, that point, though... We have to watch through... Sorry? I would say, but to that point, being prepared, what are you missing to be prepared? Is there anything that you need more of, any more support that would help in that next wave? I, I don't, n- n- nothing major at the moment. I mean, all of the hospital systems are working together. I'm on Sinai, you know, Columbia Press, NYU, Northwell. We're all working together. We talk every week. We coordinate our activities. And, of course, the governor has put out uh, a lot of guidelines and directions, especially over the last couple of days, requiring that all of us have certain uh, amount of PPE available 
um, that we plan all of our surge planning and that we make sure that we have the staff complements, etc. So this is an ongoing process. Uh, but, you know, we've gone through this and we did learn some lessons, as I recounted in the book that you just mentioned. So obviously, I, we're in a better position today than we were, I would say, back in, in February, uh, when at that time, we, we, you know, we thought it would come. We wasn't sure what it was. We didn't know how big it was going to be. Now we know that if it comes back and it comes back with severe severity, uh, we've just got to be optimally prepared. So we're in a good place. As right. long as the public continues to do what the public should be doing. Yeah, there's definitely, you know, a base of or a foundation of knowledge at this point. And I, I do want to yeah. get into your book, um, Michael, about leading through the pandemic and the COVID-19 crisis in a moment. But I do want to ask sure. you about some of the news that we got today about Russia registering its first coronavirus mm-hmm. vaccine. You know, right. you are talking to drug companies, healthcare systems, those folks who are on the front lines in terms of developing a vaccine. What is your take on that news this morning? I would be very skeptical. Um, uh, first of all, you, you, you know, you cannot let politics dictate the decisions about when the vaccine is going to be ready. And uh, you cannot let politics tell you whether or not the vaccine is efficacy with the vaccine. You've got to let science dictate here. It is too dangerous to the public at large to be jumping ahead to try to be the first out of the gate politically. And we have that problem in this country. We have, you know, national administration here talking about, well, we're going to have it by the fall. We're going to have it in November. We're going to have it before the election. This is dangerous. We should let science dictate. Obviously, we need it to be done quickly. But uh, these, these vaccines have to be tested in tens of thousands of people for certain periods of time. And um, the FDA is going to have a you know, major issue in its hands Uh, over the next couple of months um, uh, because they're going to be under enormous pressure to tell the public that we have something that we believe works. They cannot say that. They've got to say we have something and we know it works. That's the difference. So we've got to be very careful. So with the Russian announcement, I would be very, I would be quite skeptical. So I'm assuming you wouldn't uh, take that vaccine just quickly. No, I would not take it uh, right away. No, I would. I would wait to see what happens with others. Um, have we learned anything yet about leading through the pandemic, or is it too early? What's your takeaway? Oh, I think that uh, we've learned quite a bit uh, when you go through something like this, which none of us have ever been through before. Uh, you learn quickly uh, on, you know, as you go through it. And when we, we did the book. Um, Every, every weekend I worked on it uh, with uh, my co-author, Charles Kenny, uh, because it was very fresh in our minds, and uh, we wrote it as we were going through it. And uh, each chapter of the book outlines various lessons to be learned. And the idea was, it was to help other people um, when there is a crisis, whether it's a pandemic or a hurricane or another major trauma situation, and that there are certain things that you've got to plan for think about, uh, prepare for an advance, plan ahead so that you don't get caught unawares when you're in the middle of something that is a major, major crisis. Michael, what was the biggest thing that you were caught unawares um, or unaware of? Well, the speed of the increase in the number of cases at the very beginning. I mean, we went from a couple of hundred cases and in the course of a week or so, we got to 3,500 inpatient cases. Uh, the acceleration in the number of cases was pretty extraordinary. 
So, you know, you have a hospital that one day looks like it's, you know, everything is under control. And then 24 hours later, you know, you're just completely inundated. And if you don't have a plan in place as to how you're going to deal with that, when those situations do occur, you're going to be left flat-footed. And um, the other lesson, of course, is that you've got to spend an awful lot of time focusing on the safety of your staff, uh, enhancing the morale of your staff, inspiring the staff. Because what we see happening on a day-to-day basis during the course of the pandemic was extraordinary, the compassion and the dedication. But it does require that the staff needs to know that management is uh, with them, understands their circumstance, and has, does everything possible to make sure that their safety is paramount. Well, one thing I have and to say... And there are a lot of, lots and lots of lessons. I have to say, one thing jumped in, and, and, you know, we have a little chat that Alex and I, you know, just so that we don't step on each other, and she's like, yeah. God, I wonder if Michael ever sleeps. And I do wonder, like, how the heck did you write a book amid all of this? I mean, you know, everybody in the medical community was talking about how exhausted they were. Like, I just can't even imagine. Well, I, I you know, I don't sleep much in the, in the best of times anyway. I mean, I... <laughs> It's like, t- it's like uh, broadcasters. Aren't you a doctor? Isn't that like what you're supposed to do is sleep? You need sleep? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, I, I have never worked a day in my life. I have enjoyed every moment of it. So for me, I, I, you know, if you want to stress me out, give me time off. You know, I, I, and writing it on the weekends, we were in the middle of it. So when you go home, you, you know, you say, today we spent a lot of time talking about employee communication. So you go home and you write it. And as you write it, you think about other things that you should do. So it was a kind of an evolving process. Um, and I'm, I'm so delighted now that we did it. I mean, there were, you know, tense moments trying to, you know, get it all, all done and make sure it was correct, etc. cetera. Uh, but we interviewed a lot of our own employees. So there's a lot of input from employees, including frontline employees, uh, which is very, very, very instructive. And hopefully for other people that read it, they will say, oh, this is a kind of a playbook, as you mentioned earlier, that will help me uh, to prepare for, uh, as one of my staff says, how do you prepare to be unbelievably comfortable uh, with the uncomfortable? Yeah. Uh, And which is, and and remember, healthcare is, we deal with crisis all the time in healthcare. We, We have trauma, we have accidents, we have car accidents. Etc. Etc. We deal with life and death. This was an intense, yeah. long-term issue that that was with us for three months. And if you don't write it down, and you don't try to report on it, you eventually will forget about it. Right. And it's also a great lesson of the unexpected. You know, this whole idea of really thinking out of the box about the the worst case scenarios and being prepared for it. You know, we all learned, unfortunately, a very, very harsh lesson lesson on that. Michael, thank you so much. Michael Dowling, President and CEO at Northwell Health. Check out his book, Leading Through a Pandemic, out this month. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. In a special vaccine issue, Bloomberg Business Week looks at the biggest challenges, promising solutions, and the weirdest science from the molecular level on up. It's all about the path to a COVID vaccine. As part of the coverage, Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy writes about exactly where we are in the process and what's involved to getting a vaccine. He joins us on the phone in New Jersey, along with the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber, on the phone from Massachusetts. Joel, this is a must read for really understanding how difficult all of this is, the path to a vaccine. Uh, vaccine. Right. And that's why we wanted to do a vaccine issue to really sort of look at this this endeavor from as many different angles as we could possibly look at it. 
and Peter does such a wonderful job of just helping make sense of world of the world of science, often economics, and and more and more I feel like I pull him in to talk about science. And I, you know the thing that I just thought really stuck out to me about the the introduction that he wrote is just the it, which is just this wonderful essay is, is obviously we have many many different attempts underway here. And it's all an attempt to really just have something that sticks because, the especially in the U.S., we have utterly failed at containing this thing. And a vaccine is really starting to, to basically be the only way out of this madness. Uh, so, Peter, you talked to many, many, many people um, for this article. And, and I'm just curious, like, what were the what were the things that really stood out to you when you spoke to people who, who work on vaccines for a living? Just the creativity that's going on now. Vaccines have been around for centuries, really. Uh, going back to the cowpox vaccine that stopped smallpox. And yet, in the last few decades, thanks to biotechnology, genetical engineering, there's just a profusion of new concepts, entirely different ways of producing a vaccine. And one of them I think is so cool is you actually take some of the nucleic acid uh, that produces the the uh, vax, the the virus when it reproduces itself, and you put that into the human body. The human body produces a portion of the vaccine, just some of the proteins, which is not harmful, but does stimulate the immune system. So the body becomes the factory for making the vaccine. I, I want to know the question that I can ask Peter Coy that he won't know the answer to. Uh-oh. To your point, Joel. No, no, no. I don't have it. I never have it. Uh, he so, always knows the answer. Right? Uh, so, Peter, I guess when we try and look at the vaccine through then the economic lens and through the market lens, like what's the reality of when an, an, a company says, hey, this vaccine works in phase three, and then all of a sudden everyone's great and everyone's good and we can travel and life is normal again? Well, today, I guess, if you believe what came out of Russia, we already have a vaccine. Uh, well, but, it hasn't even yeah. started phase three, so maybe we yeah. take a pause. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think we're going to probably see more of these popping up in different countries around the world saying, we got one, we got one, we got one. And we're just going to have to step back and say, is this trustworthy? Um, because you really want to see a vaccine go all the way through phase three for both efficacy and safety before you're going to want to, like, put it into yourself or your kids or your parents. Yeah. And that's going to be months. That's going to be months, probably mid-20, either late this year or early next year. Now, the hope is that there are so many of them that even if no one of them is perfect, they'll collectively give us uh, the amount of protection we need to beat back this uh, pandemic. You know, Peter, the part of this that I think, you know, goes to what you're saying, Alex, about, you know, a timeline and stuff is is that there's a cost associated with the pandemic. And obviously that is what's generating headline after headline every day. And it's also what's, you know, allowing um, scientists to sort of expedite some development. And, and, you know, Peter, you have a big number here, which uh, I think, what was it, $375 billion. Billion yes. dollars wow. for Come every on. month. Right. That is just an insane amount. Of, so, so when you think about the economic implications of this and why a vaccine is so relevant, can you kind of help help make sense of that for us? Yeah. So, if you're thinking, 
why should we put money into this loony idea somebody's got? Um, the answer is you probably should, because even if there's only a small chance of it paying off, it's, it's enough to justify a fairly big expenditure. And the same thing goes for manufacturing. Why would I ever build a factory to make a vaccine if we don't even know if it's going to work? Well, because if it does work, you don't want to be having to wait around while the factory gets built. You want to be able to go into production right away. And th- this whole attitude, I don't think there's quite enough of it. I think the scientists understand it. I don't think funders have fully grasped it. There is some pretty generous funding, but it, we could afford to be doing even more. And it's unleashed just, a, as I said before, a profusion of creativity, which is, this makes this sort of a golden age for vaccinologists. So for everything that we've gotten wrong here in the U.S., Peter, perhaps the strategy of, of actually throwing billions of dollars around at, at, or millions of dollars at various companies is maybe the right way? Yeah, it actually, it is billions. Uh, uh, it, it, is, it is exactly the right thing to be doing. So that's one case where, um, I mean, as I said in the article, someday uh, when there is a vaccine or actually probably multiple vaccines, and assuming that they actually do what they're supposed to do, we're going to look back on this as these, these scientists, all over the world, from India to China to the U.S. to Germany, we're going to thank them. We're going to thank them for essentially saving our society. It would be a happy day. Well, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but, I mean, you do point oh, out, and the magazine <laughs> and the magazine has talked about this before, that we still don't have a vaccine against HIV. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. and this is a complicated virus that impacts people differently. That is so true. All right, so I guess you did kind of bring down the optimism I was trying to in- <laughs> inject into the conversation. Just 30 yeah, seconds to, to react to that uh, Debbie that Downerness. <laughs> very true. We still don't have an HIV vaccine. There's several other um, viral diseases for which there are no vaccines. Uh, yeah. This one is looking, though, as if it does seem amenable to a vaccine. And uh, in fact, again, multiple vaccines using different avenues. So something's probably going to work, maybe not as well as, say, a smallpox vaccine, maybe more like the influenza vaccine, but it will have something probably within a year. Well, it's a must-read, and it really walks you through uh, this whole process. And as uh, you and Alex and Joel mentioned, too, the economic costs and why we need this badly. Uh, Peter Coy, you're the best. We always love reading what you write. Peter Coy, uh, economics editor at Business Week, and, of course, our thanks to Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Hello, everybody. I'm Alex Steele in for Jason Kelly. I can try and do an impression of him, but I don't like sports. So, <laughs> Carol, I don't know how much I can help you with that. Can you talk fitness, workout, running? Yes, I then can you... do those things. And okay. Pilates. And Pilates. I can okay. pretend a little bit. Okay. Uh, we're joined now by Jeffrey Cleveland. Uh, he's chief economist over at Payton and Regal, uh, talking about how the recession now is significantly different than 2008. And then I'm assuming the prescription to fix it is also very different. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. As we move out of this, it's sort of like, what do we what do? we do? How do we think about the playbook when there is no playbook to think of? 
Well, I thought I was going to start with my impression of Jason. So Oh, you can definitely oh, please, do that. Please, yes, start <laughs> no, there. I, w- I wouldn't do that to him. <laughs> just between, it's just between the three of us. Nobody's going to, you know, we won't share it. <laughs> I think the biggest danger really for investors is, I don't know if it's recency bias or what, but, you know, the tendency is to look back to the last recession and then think that this one is going to be like that, and then you should position your portfolio accordingly. And if, if you look back to 2008, and you look at the job market, for example, we were shedding jobs for 26 months, I think, before we got to the lows. And then it, didn't t- it took us another six and a half, almost seven years to get back to the pre-recession levels on employment. And so that was a really long, drawn-out affair. And I don't think that's what we're seeing here. I mean, you, you both may feel otherwise, but I think this has happened much more quickly. We, we shed over 20 million jobs, and then we've added back now uh, just over 9 million. So we've retraced, if I can steal a technical analyst uh, terminology there, we've retraced 42% of the jobs lost. So this is it's just happening on a much more compressed, quicker time scale. So I think investors shouldn't be positioned for years of uh, slow growth necessarily. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Okay, because we, I know Alex has talked to folks about, you know, when we get back to pre-COVID levels in terms of the economy, I have as well, Jason has as well. Um, When do you think we get there? Because I've heard estimates of a few years, maybe two, three years. Yeah, I think it depends on what you're looking at. I mean, if you look at the GDP level, I think you could make an argument that we won't get back there until 2022 or 2023. Uh, if you're looking at the unemployment rate, Carol, I mean, it's ha- the drop in the unemployment rate is happening much more quickly than I had anticipated. I thought we were going to get up to 20% and stay there. Mm. Uh, we, we peaked out on that U3 measure of the unemployment rate just shy of 15%. We're already back to 102 We could very easily be below 9 by year end. I think, and um, and then it could again. It could take another couple of years to get back to three and a half to four percent. But I think we'll get there, and I don't think it's going to take seven years or six years. And I know we talked about this all through that period of 2009 all the way to 2015, and it wasn't really till 2015 that we had a great labor market. And I think we can get. I think we can get back uh, quicker. So I guess I'm mm. I'm turning myself into an optimist here. <laughs> we thank you for for that. Uh, but I mean, I. I the big difference also is that the Fed acted so quickly, so fast, and so hugely. Yeah. I'm just going to make up that word. So um, with that in mind, how do they pay for it down the road? How does the government pay for it? Because I think that that's also going to change how we come out of this. Like, do we inflate our way out of this? Do we raise taxes to cover it? Um, that's going to be a big, uh, a big differentiator. Yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> Keep in mind, we shut everything down, and we provided a big amount of Treasury relief to help people out in the interim. And then as we reopen, we should need less of that relief. And as people get hired back, we should need less relief. So if, it's a, if it is confined to sort of that one-time, um, you know, middle of 2020 relief where we, we really blew out the Treasury issuance, we can pay for that. We can, we can manage that. Uh, the nominal you know, debt to GDP will, will exceed the post-World War II high, yes. But we can outgrow that, I think, in the near term. We, all we need is for nominal GDP to be faster, higher than our 10-year Treasury yield. And even though I know 10-year yields are moving up today, yeah. uh, they're, still, they're still very low. And so I, I think we're fine. I think we, we can grow our way out of that. We don't need to inflate our way. We don't need to do anything special like that, in my opinion. Well, so how worried, though, are you about 
you talked about you know jobs that took what seven years or so to get back to um, pre financial crisis levels. That was a long time. We had a story on the Bloomberg, I think it was yesterday, about you know concerns about longer term scarring, and they even talked about the July jobs report that showed an increase in the duration of unemployment. You know, I do wonder, Jeffrey, about some of those longer term implications of people who don't ever get their jobs back and what that means for economic growth mm-hmm. that, you know, it's lower for longer, essentially. What I hear from what you're saying is, you know, the concern about permanent job losses, jobs that aren't going to come back online. And you're, in 2008, when you looked at it, it was 70% of jobs that were lost were permanent and a much smaller percentage, you know, maybe 20 or 30% were temporary uh, job losses. So that's why it took so long. It takes time to retrain, to, you know, retool, maybe to re- leave the labor force for time and reenter. This time around, I still, I still have pretty high hopes here. I mean, initially, I think that first jobs report we got uh, in March or April, we had about 80% of the people laid off were listed as temporary. As of Friday's jobs report, off the top of my head, I think it was about 56% were were uh, temporary. So we still have a big chunk of people that are on temporary layoff. I, I have high hopes that they will get back, uh, they will get back to work here as, as things do reopen. Um, but yeah, there is the risk that uh, there will be some, some, some permanent. But I think, I really think this pales in comparison to 08. 08 was all, almost all permanent job losses. That's but even if it pales so to 08, it could still be kind of yucky. It could it's not a good. Te- <laughs> it's not a good technical term, but uh, you know, I'm just saying it could be pretty bad for a lot of Americans still. Yes. I, I just, uh, you know, yesterday's data, the JOLTS data, I'm really excited about this data. I don't know. This is sort of second or third tier economic data, depending on who you ask. But uh, I love that report. You know, it comes out with such a lag. So we got the June data yesterday. I, I'm sure you, you talked about this. But you look at that report, and it, it, it's so striking how different things are now compared to 08. I'm looking at hires, for example. You know, you get that that uh, monthly uh, hires level, and it tailed off in 2008, falling all the way right. through the recession. This time around, we dropped. We did drop, you know, in the month of April, but we spiked all the way back up in you know May. We hit over seven million hires, and we we got another six uh, six and change million hires yeah. in June. So this is really outstanding compared to, to 2008. Well, you definitely are optimistic. So we're going to check back with you certainly in a month or so, Jeffrey, and, and see you know your thoughts and see kind of where we're going in terms of some of the trend lines. Um, really appreciate that your insight. Business Week Economics today on this Tuesday. Jeffrey Cleveland, Chief Econ- Economist, excuse me, at Payton and Regal, joining us on the phone in L.A. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We want to get Alex to this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week's Small Business Survival Guide, where we take a look uh, this week at more lending for small businesses that are stuck really in coronavirus limbo. There are many out there. Back with us is Bloomberg News Editor Dimitra Kessanides on the phone in New York City, along with Pat Mackerel. Uh, he is President and CEO of Pursuit, uh, and it is a company that offers lending to small business owners. Pat on the phone in Albany, New York. Dimitra, set it up for us. You guys have been looking you know, week after week at what's going on in the small business world. And I really do feel like small businesses just don't have the variety of offerings to access capital like large businesses do. Yeah. Hi, Carol. Thanks. I mean, that's definitely true. You know, not the variety. And uh, I mean, you really are talking about, um, you know, needing to know where access the funds that you need, that your bigger banks, even your medium-sized banks sometimes aren't going to do it. And community development finance corporations, uh, one of which funds, 
uh, are really integral to this process, uh, especially ones like his business pursuit, which for, for, for decades now has been lending to very, you know, not, we're not like 300, 500 person operations necessarily, but much, much smaller and especially minority businesses. And, you know, the whole thing continues to be a mess for these businesses. All the, the op process for the loan forgiveness has just started, and they're talking about how that's going to be delayed with right. CPP, the way, the way the money was given out. So people like Pat and his business really exist to provide alternatives to help these folks out, and, um, you know, the money they need, and to handle it and manage that process as best they can. So I want to bring in Pat. Pat, talk to us a little bit about Pursuit and tell us about what you are doing. Well, uh Pursuit is a, we're a variety of companies, four affiliated companies that have focused since 1955 on strictly on small business lending and strictly on small businesses that could not get capital uh, at reasonable rates and terms from conventional sources like financing, financial institutions. Um, most, many of our transactions historically have been referred to us by financial institutions who also support our operations with, you know, really substantial lines of credit. Um, you know, the, the, what was mentioned earlier in terms of access, uh, that is the challenge, making, you know, make, making small businesses feel that they, they have opportunities to borrow. Uh, you know, the comment about at the access to their ability to access credit, um, you know, the larger companies also have more preparation and more advisors, and they have top-flight accountants and top-flight lawyers and internal, you know, financial people that help guide their way through a loan process. Small businesses don't have those. There's usually one one person who's in charge of all of those departments, uh, which makes it hard when you're also running the business. Right. Um, so, so Pat, to, so to that, I mean, if I'm a small business and I and I can't get access elsewhere to capital and and I go to you, I mean, are, is it really onerous? So the is the the rate onerous? Is the payback onerous? Or or what kind of limitations do you look at from my end so you protect yourself? Well. Um, you know, we have been, you know, underwriting small businesses for a long, long time uh, and, you know, have managed to survive quite well. We basically limit our rates to uh, the SBA maximum rate, which is prime plus 275. So we're at, you know, our top rate is 6% uh, on most of our loans. I mean, what we really try to do uh, is uh, figure out the management, figure out how they're going to and structure them in a way so that they can be, you know, paid back. I mean, we're not in the online lending space. We're in a space where we offer frequent <clears throat> moratoriums of principles, sometimes interest payments, where we offer free business advisory services. You know, I was just reading a story about a, one of our clients who was over the moon about a business advisor we put them in touch with in terms of, you know, redoing their website to help, you know, pandemic uh, uh, operations all of which we provide to the business for free because we get grants to do business advisory services and provide a lot of things to those businesses. But um, I want to do, you know, one thing that is a great asset for small business that is underutilized, the SBA has a great program called Lender Match, and any small business can go on to the SBA website, sba.gov, access Lender Match, Tell them what they want, and the lender match will give them five or six CDFIs, organizations like Pursuit, so they can be in Wisconsin or New Jersey, you know, anywhere, and they're going to line them up with, with lenders that, that are going to be interested in, you know, have expressed an interest in lending to businesses like that. That's a great tool, uh, right. lendermatchsba.gov. 
Well, certainly good. And for- that's a really important point. These are localized, so you do need to do that. What Pat suggests is very important. He focuses on New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, you know, uh, across the country, this is not something that's a federal sort of um, approach. So it's it's very useful to do that. All right. So definitely check out uh, in terms of your local uh, area for opportunities to tap into uh, some lending and some different opportunities. And definitely check out uh, the story in the magazine. Uh, our thanks to Pat McCrell. He's president and CEO of Pursuit on the phone in Albany, New York, and Bloomberg News Editor Demetra Kessanides on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Hey, I knew that there was Britney Spears in there, so I feel like that was kind of a win. I'm Alex Steele in for progress, Jason Kelly. Progress. Thank, thank you, with Carol Masser. It is time for drive to the close. Uh, joining us now is Kevin Walkush. Uh, he's from Jensen Investment Management. He joins us on the phone from Lake Oswego, Oregon. Uh, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. How's it going there? Uh, it's great. Having a great summer, and uh, thank you for having me on today. A great summer. I feel like that's something I have not heard. Is it uh, really great? This well, entire that, summer. <laughs> I mean, do you guys see the virus at all, um, Kevin? Or like, how? What's we, your experience? Uh, our experience is yes, uh, we have it, but compared to other states, it's actually relatively low. Um, and I think you know, our government, our, our state government, got on top of it really quick, um, and so was able to help sort of steer us through this. Um, but right now, you know, we're still we're still weathering it like everyone else. We're still, you know, in it together, um, and we're working to really, you know, working together as a community to kind of, you know, really um, stay ahead of this. So, and you work. We feel pretty uh, good about it. And you also work for Quality Growth Investing, and that's the approach to how you're yeah. looking uh, to technology investing. You like the names like Microsoft, Apple, Google. Um, how do you see then maybe like the last few days of market action, irrespective of the last two hours of trading, um, when we get optimism of a vaccine, we see those names, we see tech not hold up as well, and we see more money flow into value. How do you see it? Um, you know, again, I mean, there's a lot of speculation um, in terms of obviously around a vaccine, as we know. Um, you know, I think a lot of tech names, you know, recently, at least through the pandemic, um, and where it really started rolling um, and you know, sort of the quarantine orders sort of drove that work from home. Um, and what we really saw was this increased demand of, of cloud consumption and a lot of the services that these tech companies were providing. Um, as long as we're in sort of that mode where, you know, we have high degree or high opportunity of lockdowns um, that really sort of drives that work from home, we think that's going to, you know, accelerate uh, and that demand for cloud services. In the case of, you know, a vaccine, a high success vaccine, which is what we all want, um, that may let the pedal off a little bit in terms of the demand for those services in the short term. Um, but secularly, from a long-term perspective, we're really positive um, on cloud consumption services and, you know, the types of um, value that these companies deliver. Well, so let's talk about specific names because you do like um, names like Microsoft, Apple, Google. Talk to us a little bit about that specifically. Microsoft, obviously a player uh, when it comes to uh, cloud. I mean, these are the names that we kind of, we just talked about with Dave Wilson. We're just watching, you know, the run-ups that we've seen. We're watching the valuations. Um, tell us though a little bit about uh, your thinking behind them. 
Sure. I mean, first and foremost, you know, as a quality investor, fundamentals matter. So a company has to deliver. Um, and so we want to see uh, top line deliver as a reflection of the strength of the business. In the case of Microsoft, um, it's one of the leaders in cloud, as you mentioned. Um, we see that as well. Um, and so from a value standpoint and what we see from an opportunity standpoint is Microsoft has strongly benefited um, through the pandemic, um, even leading up to it. So strong growth, it doesn't look like it's really from a fundamental standpoint has skipped a beat in that regard. Um, and you see strong demand, um, A, on enterprise cloud, but then consumer-driven cloud aspects. Uh, so you see demand on office. You see demand on um, Teams consumption, which really supports the office. So that's sort of that collaboration software, which we're seeing people use dramatically more. Um, and then Microsoft has a strong gaming business. Um, and so from a diversification standpoint, we've really seen them hitting on all cylinders in terms of demand from COVID now, but we also see that sustainable demand carrying them through going forward. So what I found interesting is this month so far, the Russell 2000 is having its best month versus the NASDAQ 100 since 2016, as I was talking about earlier, that uh, recovery rotation. Um, does that make buying opportunities for you? Do you also need to diversify in other sort of quality growth areas for when we see these kind of shakeouts, or how do you see it? Um, as far as tech, um, so right now we're at about you know, 30% of the portfolios in tech. Um, and so, and the Russell's even higher. It's what's interesting is, is yes, the Russell's done really well, um, but it also has a lot of concentration risk, in our opinion. Um, and so, um, you know, a handful of names are really driving incremental uh, value within that and growth in that that benchmark. Um, so, as a quality growth investor, so while through the portfolio is tech, seventy percent um, is in other areas that we think are can help us diversify from a risk standpoint, but also balance out from an opportunity standpoint. So overall, our healthcare holdings are about 25% of the portfolio. We also have a strong um, exposure to consumer staples, which has performed really well um, through the downturns we know uh, with all the uh, stay-at-home orders and the pantry stocking. So um, so we've seen, we've seen really good opportunities across the board. Well, and I'm curious how aggressively you, were, you guys were buying, Kevin, in the sell-off um, before we saw the bounce back. Were you doing a lot of buying? We, you know, for us, you know, we want to maintain full, uh, full investment. So that means our cash position is relatively low. Um, so we didn't enter it with a large cash position. From a buy perspective, what we did was um, we did see some opportunities um, on the tech side. We did see some opportunities on staples. Um, and then we also, we have a little bit of discretionary exposure. So we own Nike, TJX, uh, a little bit of Starbucks and DF. And so we actually took that exposure down. So we took that a little bit off the table and then redeployed it into those areas where we thought were higher growth. So, uh, such as a Microsoft and Apple. What do you do if we don't get a stimulus? Um, you know, it's interesting. I think we, we probably, we're not going to change really what we do. Um, from an investment standpoint, because our focus is on investing in a concentrated high conviction portfolio of all weather durable names. And so the stimulus certainly is a near term catalyst. Um, I think there's a degree of expectation already built in to the markets, in my opinion, by investors. Um, but at the end of the day, it kind of comes back to how a business executes. Um, and we think with or without stimulus, our types of businesses can continue to execute in that regard. So we view the stimulus as, as great for the overall economy great for our businesses. But if it doesn't happen, which we believe is unlikely, um, but on the remote chance it doesn't, we still think um, our businesses continue to generate that value and that gets recognized in the market. So you're not worried about another kind of dip lower? Just quickly, just got about 30 seconds here. 
Oh, I think the risk is definitely there. I okay. mean, I think from a strong focus on terms of momentum, um, momentum has really had its, its sort of moment in the sun, obviously. Um, so we, we definitely view the risk of a pullback as really high. Um, and mm. so, you know, again, that's where I think investors need to kind of maybe reconsider their positioning, um, their exposures, um, and maybe consider sort of that risk and likelihood that, you know, I think there's a downturn that could potentially uh, come up. Yeah, reminder that, you know, things do go down <laughs> when we're in an upward Just trend. Ask gold. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. That's one of the most read stories. It's really unbelievable, the move that we saw today. Um, Kevin Walkish over at Jensen Investment Management uh, on the phone from Oregon. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.